Well, good morning, Rooted Church. Hope everybody's doing all right this morning. Um, my name is Alex. I'm, a, I'm an elder candidate here at Rooted, um, and I am thankful to be preaching to you this morning. Um, if you, I'm going to take Rodney's fancy tablet holder thing down here. Uh, but as you can probably guess, this morning, we're going to be talking about... There we go. We're going to be talking about generosity. Um, we're going to be talking about the Second Corinthians and... How did they press into generosity? How did they, um, in the midst of affliction, in the, in the midst of persevering uh, through suffering, how did they go about generosity? Now, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, but also I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squeeze in some chapter 9 in there. Um, and, in my, and I know what you're thinking, that that's a lot of scripture to have for a specific sermon. And in my rookie status, I'll just be completely honest, um, I couldn't really narrow it down very well. Um, so going throughout both of those chapters this morning, um, there's a lot of layers to generosity, um, and that's why generosity is one of our core values here at Rooted Church, uh, that we want to be a church that's generous. But what, is, what does that exactly mean? So hopefully through those two chapters, we're going to be able to peel away layer by layer of the value that we know as generosity. And I hope and pray that we can discover the various ways that God has provided for us to be generous, but also how he has equipped us already uh, so, so generously. The word, the word that is translated in Greek from that passage that Paul uses for generosity is the word haplotus, which means someone being single-minded and focused and committed to something. And so the value of generosity that we have here at Rooted Church is one that is not full of pretense. It's not complicated. Uh, we're going to talk about something that is simple this morning and straightforward. And just as kind of a sidebar, I am really thankful to be preaching to you this morning, just in, and if there's no other reason, just to provide our pastor a little bit of a break. Um, throughout this week, as I was preparing for our sermon, I quickly became really, really thankful for our pastor. Um, I don't want to sound superficial, uh, but I just want to give a friendly shout-out, uh, because he works really, really hard for this congregation. In a season where our church plant is growing, where there are many people who, that need his attention each and every single week, you know, first and foremost, it's his family. Then it comes down to our current members. And then there's prospective attendees that are wanting his attention. And then there's pastors even within the community. And these people reach out to him, not just for spiritual direction, but to bounce ideas, ideas off and brainstorm, to work through the challenge of what is COVID-19 in this specific season. And as this is a specific challenging season, not just of COVID-19, but to be a pastor, I know he is incredibly generous with his time, but it's also a tiring season for a pastor. And we haven't even started discussing like his daily responsibilities of writing a sermon, of being the executive director of Crosslines Ministries, of planning and programming the ministries that we have here at our church. Uh, oftentimes, Rodney is flying solo in a lot of those things, and that can be tiring. So I'm, I'm thankful to give him some rest. But I say all this because our topic is generosity, and I think our pastor is one of the most generous people I've ever met. He's generous with personal commodities that are irreplaceable, or if they are hurt or broken, very, very difficult to repair. See, when you hear the word generosity, and when you, hear, you heard the passage of Scripture that was read to us earlier by my friend Rob that we're discussing today, I'm guessing your mind immediately drifted towards finances. Although that is a key theme in this passage of Scripture and throughout this text, I found that finances wasn't the only thing that was convicting to me related to generosity. See, it's also in relation to our time and our talents and our emotions, and our behavior, and our attitudes. 
And you see, those are the things that sometimes when we are generous with them, it become most dangerous and it become, we can become the most insecure. Yeah, being generous with our time is risky because guess what? We never get our time back. Being generous with our talents is risky because what if you fail? Or what if you're not properly prepared? Or what if people don't think your talent is valid? Being generous with our focus and our energy means that you are taking your own top priority and putting that to the back burner and letting someone else's or something else's top priority become your focus. And being generous with your enthusiasm or your emotions? Well, shucks, let's just go to a men's and a women's Bible study, be a fly on the wall. Who's the first person to be generous with their emotional state at the moment or with their behavior throughout the week or through the month in confession of sin? And lastly, yeah, being generous with our finances is hard because, well, dang it, we worked for it. Or maybe you are distracted and blinded by financial generosity because of the bills and the debt that you have surrounding you. And plus, there's a tangible nature of holding on to that, that, that slim edge of a paycheck that we have or that money that we have in the bank account. It feels somewhat secure. I say each of those things because I'm, I'm a straight shooter. Uh, I don't want to get up here and pretend that generosity is really, really easy or living by this value is really, really easy. And even as I was writing this sermon throughout this week, I was like, Alex, how are you starting at the beginning of this sermon talking about how hard this is? <laughs> like, am I leading this in the wrong direction? But I can't be dishonest with you. Living like Jesus and living generously is a challenge. And the gospel reminds us that, man, we have to think about, what does the gospel say about generosity? That our creator, that our perfecter of our faith has been generous to us. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for our shame, that he has defeated death and that he is alive today. And then we get to take part in that generosity. Being generous not only takes effort, but it also takes a certain mindset to be executed in the right way. There should be no expectation of reciprocity when it comes to generosity. It is a gift and a gift only. So Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word generous like this. Liberal in giving, marked by an abundance on ample proportions, and characterized by a noble or kindly spirit. Think about that definition again, and then think about your Savior. I would argue that it perfectly describes Jesus. So that, that is why here at Rooted, one of our core values is generosity. That's why at the beginning of the sermon, I've tried to define the challenges and, and the, the, the strengths of being generous. But ultimately, what does that mean? What does that mean and it was an everyday Christian to be, generous, to, to, be, to be generous. What does it look like when we have forgotten what it looks like to be generous? Why do we feel eager to be generous maybe at the beginning of our faith, but then we become stagnant with our time and we don't become generous with our finances or our efforts or our enthusiasm? And so I hope that through 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we can answer some of those questions. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I come before you and um, I just want to thank you so much for your generosity this morning uh, through your provision of your son Jesus. Uh, you have given us so, so much. And so I, I pray, as I always do, that you would blot out the distractions of our week. Lord, all of us come in with a lot of different things going on. And so I pray uh, that those distractions, although they may be valid, whether those are personal or professional, that we'd be able to focus on your word this morning, that I'd be an empty vessel for you and that your scripture would do the talking. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to go back, open up your Bibles, um, and let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 again, um, just to start us off. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of our God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. This passage is Paul's admonishment to the Corinthian church related to the collection that was being taken for the suffering believers in Jerusalem. We need to understand that Paul kind of had this love-hate relationship with the Corinthian church. Paul's communication with the church actually spanned about seven years, um, and I think there's about four letters, but we have two of them. And sometimes people like to think of maybe like 1 Corinthians as like this power-packed, awesome letter. And then 2 Corinthians is kind of like the oddball of the group, um, maybe uh, a little the black sheep or the outcast. And as I was reading throughout this week, it kind of just dawned on me how I kind of think about that sometimes with 2 Corinthians. I don't give it a chance. And it's kind of like the diverging diamond, actually, of Highway 44 and Rangeline. You know, like when you go into that interchange, you really think like, who, what engineer doodled this up on a lunch break? to actually think, like, after I get off the highway going 45, 60 miles an hour, I'm going to drive on the wrong side of the road. Yeah, that's a good idea. But after you start to go through that interchange a few times, you start to realize, like, oh, okay, this is more effective than the cloverleaf. Okay, I get it. And that was kind of, that was how God convicted me this week of Second Corinthians, um, that it is a hard, hard book to a people that Paul deeply, deeply love. And that's why Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, they range from love admonishment to careful but critical rebuke and question. And in chapter 7, if you actually look at verse 10 and 15, it kind of shows, if you just read those quickly, it shows Paul's confidence in the Corinthian church that what he tells them, what he encourages them to do, where he, where he tries to bring conviction to them through the Holy Spirit, he trusts that they're going to do what he asks. And whether Paul was writing uh, to rebuke them or to criticize them, he trusted that the power of the Holy Spirit was transforming their life. And so this morning, as we break down 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, I hope and pray that we are like the Corinthians, that we're going to listen to what it has to say. So let's look through verses 1 through 7. We're just kind of going to break this down chunk by chunk. In verses 1 through 7, what I appreciate about Paul starts off this chapter is he's reminding the Corinthian church of someone else's example. Rather than Paul just saying, hey, look at me, do what I say, 
He is encouraging the church in Corinth, and he's encouraging us right now, who's struggling in the midst of collecting a gift for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. So look at examples of their brothers and sisters in Macedonia. Now, a, a, a word of caution. This isn't Paul playing the comparison game. This, the comparison game is often a very surface-level comparison game, right? It's a trap so often laid by Satan for Christians that you would think that we would have that perfected and down by now. But how quickly are we so quick to compare ourselves to others? When we compare ourselves to others, especially when it comes to generosity, I would challenge you to say that you're only looking at the exterior signposts of God's generosity in their life. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what their motivation is in being generous. And we don't want to fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to others. Paul tells the story of the church of Macedonia to provide perspective related to the work that had been done in Christ through suffering as their lives were transformed. The second through the fifth verse says this, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Maybe the most important line of that string of verses is the last one. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Paul's encouraging the church in Corinth, that, and he's encouraging us right now, that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of their perceived poverty, they first turned to the Lord. That this is the action that led to the abundance of joy, which then leads to the wealth of generosity. So I'd ask myself, and I would ask you this morning, when we are in the midst of affliction, when we are in the midst of our perceived poverty, whether that is our gifts and our talents, or our abilities, or our emotional depth, or our physical strength, do we continue to assess ourselves by our own earthly standards? Or do we look to our Creator related to our generosity and how He has provided His Son Jesus for us in Christ? Paul, Paul then goes to say that when we turn to the Lord in the midst of our feeble attempts to be generous, He will provide evidences of grace and how He has already provided. Read verse 7 again. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, all, in our love for you, Say what you want about the church in Corinth, right? Like it had its own problems just like every other church it had in this day, like in the church that we have right now. But they also had their God-given strengths. So if you're taking notes in the crowd right now, or if you're taking notes at home, I see you Newmans, we miss you, um, that regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your current financial bank account or your perceived strengths, to even start the, be the process of being generous we must look to the Lord to understand how he has been generous to us. And when we are reminded by, by God and his grace of his provision of his son, and that most importantly, our view of ourselves and our identity in Christ will provide us the definition and the means and the methods to be generous. Okay, for all you note takers out there, let's move on to the second point. Knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is critical in knowing how our hearts and our minds should be oriented when it comes to being generous. So let's read verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 say this, I say this not as a command, but by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is emphasizing in these verses about generosity is generosity is not to be a command. It's not to be compelled. It should not be it should be completed voluntarily. He is challenging us to think eternally about our generosity mindset. And what and what I love about Paul's writing is that he throws down in a really gracious and kind way. As we think about ourselves, as we think about our identities or our ability to be generous, he points us and the Corinthians to what we as Christians should already deeply know, the love of Jesus. Our, our person of our ability to be generous and our attitude in the midst of generosity should be coinciding with the action of turning to our God, to be turning to the sacrifice of his son. The willingness of the son to condescend to this earth, to die a brutal death on the cross, to live a perfect life without sin is our example but that's the unattainable bar that is set for us related to generosity. What Christ has done for us as Christians is to be reflected in what, but also how we do things for others. Christ didn't begrudgingly come to this earth to save us, but he came to this earth with a mission and a purpose motivated in love. And so we too should generously, voluntarily sacrifice ourselves for others, for God's glory and God's kingdom. Verses 10 through 15 is where Paul gets really practical and really matter-of-fact. So let's read those verses again as we, as we continue to move forward. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who have started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. In these short five verses, Paul gets really practical really, really fast. Now, remember the encouragement that he's provided to us in the verses prior to this one. God's sacrifice of his son is our primary identity. It should be our primary motive and our perspective in related to generosity. So then where does Paul go from here? He tests our motivation. He tests our desire for execution. He often, how often are we so motivated to start something, but yet we do not finish? I am notorious for that. Now, before, before, before Paul's onslaught of practical points, he reminds us that the process of being generous, whether that's a financial generosity or an emotional generosity, a physical generosity, or anything in between, he reminds us that it's beneficial for us. He references our desire to do it. And as I read this passage a few different times, I couldn't help but connect the phrase desire to do it as well as readiness. How encouraged was Paul that the Corinthian church wanted to start an offering for the suffering, Christi suffering Christians in Jerusalem? He was thrilled. But that desire was the Holy Spirit working inside the church corporately and the church individually. The church was ready to give, and he challenged those who were ready to give and eager to complete the project. Because here's the deal, folks, though. We're not talking about starting like a Lego Millennium Falcon, all right? We're talking about pressing into a challenging spiritual discipline. 
And so there's always a desire to do something. And even preparing our minds, preparing our bodies, preparing our mindsets to be ready or feeling like we are ready doesn't necessarily equate to completeness. I want to tell you a story that humbles and convicts me still to this day that God brought to my mind um, while I was reading this. And I promised myself I wasn't going to get emotional. Okay, okay. I was attending my uh, Missouri State University my freshman year of college, and I was a very new and naive believer. And I thought I was kind of cruising down the fast lane, you know, of Christian, Christendom, of spiritual readiness. Um, I was plugged into a campus Bible study. I was making good decisions about my social life, which was a stark contrast to what I was doing in high school. And frankly, um, I thought I was ready. And you could say I was kind of like the Corinthian church, that I was young in my faith, but I was becoming aware and enthused about theological principles. I was walking one afternoon to an afternoon biology lab, and I walked past a young blind woman attempting to go somewhere, and she was clearly lost, searching and scratching with her walking cane, doubling back and forth in front of an academic building. And as I passed her, I thought, I wonder if this woman needs help. I stared, I paused, and I contemplated. But then, like so quickly happens in my life, distraction came rushing in. And I was like, Alex, you have to get to your lab. And so I turned and I dashed to my biology lab. Each step I took further away from that young woman, there was more conviction and more confusion. Why am I still walking away from this situation? Why did I not help her? And so by the time that I got to my lab, my cowardice, my guilt, and my conviction had completely overwhelmed my composure. Even my lab partner at the time was like, hey, are you you okay? I mean, this is just a biology lab. Um, And I immediately spilled my guts, just confessing what had just happened. Guys and gals, why was my time more valuable? Why was my convenience more preferable in the moment? Why did I not give heed to my conviction? I had the means to help her, but why didn't I? And I still still can't answer that question. This is what Paul is referring to when he talks about desire, when he talks about readiness. In Greek, the word that Paul uses is prothemia, which indicates someone who is ready and determined to act. But what does Paul say about that initial readiness? We need to match our readiness with the ability and determination to execute and the ability to act. Paul goes on to remind us that what we have in that moment, when we feel ready and eager to act, is enough. But why do we get distracted and insecure in the midst of that, of that generosity being right at our, the edge of our fingertips? Why do we tell ourselves that we don't have the time? Why do we tell, do we tell ourselves we don't have the money? Why do we tell, tell ourselves that we don't have the emotional bandwidth to love, to love that in this moment? Verses 12 and 15, 12 through 15 stress that God has given you exactly what you need to be generous in that moment for the good of others. How does Paul categorize what you have in that present moment? Look at verse 12 more closely. He says it's acceptable. And here's another way to say it. You're not the one that's on the hook for looking at yourself or looking at your assets or looking at your gifts or looking at your abilities and wondering whether or not it is good enough to be generous or that it is enough to be generous. God says that what you have is acceptable. And God does not want you to give out of a burden. God does not want you to give to what you cannot afford either. What you have right now, believe it or not, is enough to be generous. 
Your bank account has enough. The hours in the day you have are enough. Your testimony and your salvation story is enough. Your sinful, scared, stubborn, and prideful heart is enough. And why? Why is it enough? Because it's not about, not about, it's about, it's about for others for God's glory through Christ's redemptive work in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14 tells, tells us your abundance will be a blessing to others and that blessing will return to you with abundance. Guys and gals, I had all the knowledge, all the skills, all the abilities, all the passion, all the emotion, whatever you want to call it, to help that young woman out. But I didn't because of my sin and my insecurity, my distraction. I thought that I was eager and ready to start the process of being generous, but I wasn't even able to start the project. So what's the point here? So if you're like, if you're like me, some of you have scribbled like half a page of notes and you're like, you're really frustrated that you don't have like that nice tagline or headline at the very top. I apologize. The note should be readiness does not mean completeness, but that God has given you all that you need to be generous. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a scripture speed through, all right? So this, we're going to transition to chapter 9, um, and we're going to you know, kind of over, uh, glaze over the commendation of Titus and the geographical details of the collection for the suffering of the Christians in Jerusalem. So we're going to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Let's read that together. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, must give as decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So here's the headline of this section. Don't spare your generosity and find joy in giving through knowing your generosity is eternal. Let's take a look at verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 6. From the jump, don't you love how Paul still has to start this passage with the point, the point is this. After chapters 7 and 8, where Paul is painting a compare and contrast story of the church in Macedonia and God's transformative power in them to be generous, the guy still has to say, the point is this, which, by the way, or as the kids say these days, BT dubs, if I'm ever in a conversation with you and I say something like, hey, here's the deal, or hey, I'm going to be honest with you, or hey, I'm not going to lie to you, that's usually what I'm trying to do like Paul. Like, there has to be a line drawn in the sand to get the person's attention, and that's what Paul is doing here. So let's give our attention to these verses. And Paul, Paul is usually blunt and to the point, but in chapters 7 and 8, he described the scenario. He has laid the gospel foundation of truth alongside kind, uh, kindness and grace, but also with rebuke. And, he, and he, this is empirical evidence. He has referred to the Macedonian church. He has gone over his case precedent. And now Paul is, Paul is dropping there. And if you haven't figured out why, well, by golly, if you haven't figured out how to be generous, I'm just going to tell it to you this time. Here's the point. Verses 6 and 7 is Paul's blunt and uh, blunt and to-the-point rhetoric that we have grown to know and love. It says, whoever, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. First, Paul references back to an Old Testament proverb that can be found in Job 4.8 or Jeremiah 12.13 or Psalm 126.5 or Proverbs 22.8. I'm not going to go into all those, but it's essentially you reap what you sow. And in this context, he says that you, when you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And he then follows that statement up with another cross-reference from the Old Testament that God loves a cheerful giver. This can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10. Not only are we to be generous, we are to have joy when we are generous. Remember, Paul isn't pointing to himself. He isn't referring even back to the Macedonian church anymore. He is examples and he's over excuses and he's over our insecurities. And so what Paul is doing is just raising a mirror up to us and bringing alongside that mirror scripture and then pointing to God. You know, just talking about taking it up a notch, right? It's kind of like when you walk into Quick Trip and you see their roller grill items, right? And you just become a world of their cornucopia of roller grill items. And you're like, bam, my eyes are open. open. It's amazing. The spicy chicken taquito is. I never knew that. That's what Paul is doing. He's, he's, he's trying to broaden our understanding by using a common phrase that they probably knew and understand with you reap what you sow, but he's wanting to put it in a new gospel context. Paul wants us to realize that God loves a joy-motivated generosity because it expresses contentment in, God, in God's gracious giving to us, the believer. And so much so that he promises that every good work is possible, that you are sufficient, and that this sufficiency in Christ, in connection to your generosity, leads to abounding grace and completeness of all good works. So again, let's go, again, let's go back to scriptures and remind us what verse 8, 9, and 10 say. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Christian, don't overlook verse 8. Don't read past it without understanding the significance of those words. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You may be nervous about being generous. You may be timid to release your time or to release your finances or to release your emotions. But at the end of the day, your generosity is not about you. Through Christ, God has provided everything that you need. And when the time comes, which that time is right now, by the way, for you to be generous to, for his kingdom, he extends his grace and he extends his provision to you. And not just the bare minimum, but to the point of abounding. Don't you see that Paul is circling the wagons here? Early in chapter 8, he addressed how if we weren't sure about our ability to be generous, he reminded us of God's provision. Now Paul is reminding us that our generosity is rooted in God's unending grace to us and that this is the joy he's referring to. This is the grace that motivates our generosity in the midst of our distractions or in the midst of our circumstances. And this is the generosity that this, this, this grace in God's generous gift to us through his son Jesus is what provides seed for the harvest and the readiness to, to act. And by the way, the harvest is plentiful. 
Moreover, it's important to understand that God's problem, verse 10, is related to increasing the harvest. This should be understood not in an earthly way, but in an eternal way. That Christian, we have to remind ourselves that our godly generosity of our time or our finances, of our talents or our abilities, has lasting, eternal impact. Okay, so you've hung with me this far. Don't you go drifting off now. This is the last segment of Scripture, um, and then we're going to start to wrap things up. Let's read the last segment of chapter 9. It says, 11, in verses 11 through 15, it says this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Friends, I know I probably sound repetitive this morning, but if Paul is willing to say it multiple times, so am I. As you pursue and press into godly generosity, you will have what you need. Read verse 11. It says that you will be enriched in every way. Do you understand that? There are no restrictions to generosity. There's no red tape. There's no political boundary. There's no minimum. There's no maximum. There's no fine print for qualifications when it comes to generosity. Your God and your creator will provide you exactly what you need to be generous in the moment related to your time, your talents, and your finances. And I feel like, I feel like unfortunately, I have to add like a disclaimer here because some of you in this room are probably doing the Christianese internal eye roll. Like, you're not going to do it out in the crowd where I could see you, but in your mind you're like, Puh, provision, man, I don't know. Remember that generosity is not to be a burden, nor is it to be done out of guilt or compulsion. When you are generous outside of the suggestions discussed in these verses or in the motivating factors of these verses, yeah, you better believe that your generosity can go a little bit haywire or it can be a little bit skewed. If you serve out, serve out of a motive to be, to be noticed or gain a reputation instead of a humble and joyful spirit, there are people in this room in this church who will probably sniff you out faster than Mahomes signed that $500 million contract. If you're financially giving to get your name on a wall up at Rooted Church, let me tell you, one, that's not probably going to happen. And let me tell you a sad story. So I worked, for one summer, I worked at Maranatha Bible Camp as an intern. And I remember we were sitting around at the very beginning of the summer because it was a financially strapped summer. Um, and we were talking about how different ways to raise money. And I was actually sitting right next to uh, a long, a seasoned pastor, and we were talking about all the different names that are on some of these buildings, different church names. And at the very beginning of Maranatha Bible Camp, yeah, these people, these churches gave to help those, that, the, the construction. But then when we went back, when you went back to those people for additional finances, like, oh, no, sorry, that's okay. But guess what? Their name is still on the building. If I were to be generous to all of you before I was generous to my wife, you better believe that my home life would be negative and mismanaged. And I'll just even be completely transparent with you. This week was a challenge. While working a Monday through Friday 8 to 5 job and trying to write a sermon as a rookie and also trying to learn to love my wife and my daughter, I probably did. I need to confess to my wife, I didn't allocate a lot of time to her. But I want to thank my wife because she provided grace and space for me to do this, to serve our church. But it's not easy. 
So the point of this passage is this. Your generosity is a reflection of the gospel that you have experienced and that you believe. And ultimately, it leads to thanksgiving to God because it's not about you. Over and over again, these two passages, Paul has reminded us that generosity leads to thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving isn't about you. It's about God's provision, God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, God's plan for you, all for his glory. And do you not think that it is significant of all people that Paul repeats himself practically in in verses 11 and 12 related to the thanksgiving that is produced from generosity? Go to chapter 9. Read 11 and 12 again with me. It says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There's your first one. Verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. There's your thanksgiving number two. Friends, if you're a Christian in this room, I want to remind you how lucky we are to have a God who desires to glorify himself through us. He does not need us to glorify himself, but he chooses to allow us to participate in the fun. We have a God who wants our personal and our professional and our social circles to give thanks to God because of our generosity. Your generosity leads to thanksgiving, and it's as simple as that. All right, my conclusion. Those are all the points that I have, and as Rodney does so well, I'm going to wrap it up and conclude my sermon by preaching another 10 to 15 minutes. I'm just joking. That's sorry. That's an easy preaching joke. Uh, Thank you for my wife for laughing. Okay. For for real, though, early in chapter 9 and 10, Paul, Paul raises seeds for the sower, increasing in righteousness. Paul's referring back to yet another Old Testament scripture here, another cross-reference in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. So let's turn there together. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Ladies and gentlemen, your generosity, as flawed as it may be, is used by God to accomplish his purpose and does not return to him empty. When you tithe to this church, it accomplishes what God desires and draws you closer to creator dismantling any idols you may have of financial independence or slavery while blessing others abundantly. When you take time out of your day to serve someone else in need and and love how else they need to be loved, it does not return to God empty. And it reflects God's love for you to someone else, bringing Him glory and thanksgiving. When you use your talents and your gifts to be a culture maker for this church, as challenging it as it may be, it does not return to God empty. It showcases the sufficiency of the church as a whole. That regardless of our smaller attendance, regardless that maybe we are an early church plant, God will provide what this church needs through his people. Your generosity, your joy-filled, sacrificial donations accomplishes God's purpose and succeeds in the places he has sent you to the people he has connected you with. So I'm just going to go out and say, I'm just going to come out and say right now that God has put each and every single one of you 
at Rooted Church for his purpose and for his glory. Whether this is your first Sunday or your 72nd Sunday, your presence matters and that your generosity matters. Whether that's a financial generosity, a physical generosity, an emotional, intellectual generosity, it all matters. And I hope and, I hope and pray we can be a church that is generous with all aspects of our life. Knowing that God will enrich us in every single way. Knowing that God will be providing us all things and allowing us to be sufficient in all things at all times. Knowing his grace and truth will be provided in abundance. Ultimately, bringing him thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Um, God, we come before you and I thank you for an opportunity to gather together as a church in the midst of a tumultuous season of our community and our country to break open your word and remind us of who we are in you. That, Lord, you have a plan designed for, for us because you deeply love us and you sent your son Jesus as a generous gift to us, defeating our sin and our shame, and that you are alive today, Jesus, and you are present here. And so I pray that Rooted Church would become a church known in this community and known in the hearts and minds of the individuals who walk into this building or engage with us out in the community that we are generous whether that's with our finances or with our talents or our abilities, but that we are generous because we are sowing seeds for the harvest and the harvest is plentiful. So would you bring us conviction this morning, but also would you remind us of your grace and your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going pre- to transition into our time of communion. And this morning, we have an opportunity as a family to break bread together and remember that what Christ has done for us. Yeah, it may look a little bit different to try and provide safety and security for COVID-19, but that doesn't change what we're about to press into. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 20. It says, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If you're a Christian this morning... Communion is an intimate opportunity for you to reconvene with your Savior, to remind yourself of the cross, to confess your sins to him, to repent, and to receive that generous grace. If you are not a Christian this morning, communion is not for you, but Christ is for you. Don't, and also to to those in the room, don't, don't rush up here. Let the moment play out. Let it unravel. Let the depth of the gospel block out your distractions. Remember your salvation story. Or listen to that still, small voice that's beckoning you to give your life over to him. And then come to the table to remember what God has done, to celebrate his holiness, to celebrate his grace, his provision, and his generosity.